morning we'll be reading from the book of 1 Peter. We'll be reading 1 Peter verses uh, chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. First Peter 4, verses 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is the time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Pray once again for God to open our eyes to see wonderful things from His law. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for Your Word and Your Spirit. And that's exactly the way that You have promised to be at work in us through Your Word and through Your powerful Holy Spirit. And Lord, as we come now to hear from You, we pray that that is exactly what You would do, that You would have Your way with us, that You would accomplish Your will in our lives, through your word and your spirit. Pray that you would open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts to be changed by you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The sermon this morning is coming from Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56. Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. How many times have you heard someone say, life is a journey? You heard that? I've heard that a number of times where someone has tried to encourage me, you know, don't, don't worry about the destination. Just enjoy the process. I think often people want to encourage you with these kinds of words. They're trying to get you to, to slow down, smell the flowers, enjoy the things around you. 
On our passage this morning, Jesus sets out on a journey. Actually, for Jesus, all of his life was a journey. A journey from the manger all the way to the cross. But for Jesus, the destination of his journey, where he was going, was critically important. Because the cross shaped all of his life. His obedience and his suffering was all building up to the cross. Now in our passage this morning, Jesus sets out on the final leg of his journey to the cross. Luke says that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus goes to Jerusalem to be our willing suffering Savior. And as he sets out, he immediately faces opposition. He experiences rejection even in the first few miles of his journey. This is something that he is willing to do in order to earn salvation for you. But that's not what the disciples want. The disciples are not willing to endure the same kind of suffering that the Savior needs. Here again in this passage, we we see Jesus' disciples come up with their own plan of salvation. They want a plan that involves glory and judgment, but unfortunately their plan crucially misses suffering and the cross. The disciples have hollowed out the gospel. Now as we look at this, the plan of Jesus and the plan of the disciples, we see the good news that God has provided us with a Savior who is willing to suffer and die for us. And He also calls us and enables us to suffer with Him. So again, God has provided us with a Savior who is willing to suffer and die for us. And God calls us and enables us to suffer with Him. So we look at that plan of God, the plan of giving that Savior and of calling us to suffering, we'll see three basic points. We'll see first the plan of God, suffering and glory in verses 51 to 53. Then we see second, the plan of the disciples, glory and judgment in verse 54. And then finally, the plan of God continues in verse 55. Well, the first thing we see in this passage is the plan of God, verses 51 to 53. And we see that that plan of God involves suffering and glory. Verse 51 actually marks a major turning point in the Gospel of Luke. So far, Jesus has largely been in the northern part of Israel in Galilee. But now in this verse, Jesus turns south And he begins his final journey to Jerusalem. Luke 9, 51, starting here all the way almost to the end of Luke chapter 19, covers that time of his journey. That's a a huge section in the Gospel of Luke, is that final trip to Jerusalem. Now Luke makes clear that this significant change in Jesus' ministry is part of God's plan. Notice how verse 51 starts. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That that phrase, when the days drew near. 
could even say more literally, when the days were fulfilled for him to be taken up. And that language of fulfillment, that should ring a bell in your mind. Because that language of fulfillment shows clearly that Jesus and his ministry are proceeding on a divine timeline. This is all in accordance with the plan of God. And verse 51 marks this new era in the plan of God for Jesus' ministry. Now before we move on, it's interesting to, to look at verse 51 more closely. Because the event that's in view here is not Jesus' crucifixion. See, it doesn't say... When the days were fulfilled for Jesus to die, he set his face toward Jerusalem. No, it says when the days were fulfilled for him to be taken up. See, what God is focusing our attention on is not just Jesus' crucifixion, but more specifically what comes after Jesus' ascension. That's what Jesus is looking toward, and that's what God is pointing our attention to also. Now that phrase, to be taken up, Luke actually uses this similar phrase in the, gospel, in, the, uh, in the book of Acts to specifically talk about Jesus' ascension. In a, in a sense, what Luke is, was doing here by pointing us to the ascension is he's looking at the very end of Jesus' work and he's including everything else in between. Right? He's talking about Jesus' suffering, he's talking about Jesus' death, his resurrection, and... Finally, his ascension. Now, we would do a similar thing. Let me give you an example of this, where we take kind of the the last piece of the puzzle and we're trying to show the whole picture. If I told you, for instance, that I went for a trip, and I said, I I went up and I got on I-95 and I drove to New York on I-95. Well, that's the final destination, but where did I go through? Well, if I was on I-95, I must have gone through Washington, right? That's where it goes. I must have gone through Philadelphia as well on my way to New York. Again, if Jesus ascends last part, he was also killed and he was also raised. God is focusing our attention on the end, keeping the end in sight. But why does he do that? Why is it helpful for us as we go with Jesus toward Jerusalem to keep the end in sight. Well, as you go a little further in Luke, as Jesus gets closer and closer to Calvary, things look pretty bleak, right? You just have to look at Jesus and even in that final week leading up to the cross. So actually by focusing on the ascension and the victory of Jesus, the disciples and us are given great hope as we go forward in the gospel. But there's a, I think there's a bigger reason, too, that looking at the ascension also shows us the result of Jesus' suffering and death. His suffering and death is productive. It's accomplishing something. He suffered and died for our salvation. And as Jesus ascends back into heaven, he does so as the successful complete Savior. He was raised from the dead in resurrection. It shows us that his sacrifice for us was accepted by God, right? 
But then also he was received back into heaven when the work of salvation was complete to receive the honor and glory that he deserved. And now as he is in heaven, he is ruling and he is giving us gifts. He is applying the salvation that he earned to us as the conquering Savior. All of those things, all of those things are in view as Luke points us forward to Jesus' ascension and the completed work of salvation. This is what Jesus is doing. That's the end goal as he turns south to Jerusalem. Well, how does Jesus respond to God's plan? Well, we could say it's, it's his own plan as well, right? Because God, Jesus is God, and he has agreed to this plan with his Father. But notice that Luke points out he set his face to go to Jerusalem. What Luke is saying is that Jesus, in his humanity, both God and, remember, he is 100% man. In Jesus' humanity, he must still make the conscious choice to commit in following God's plan. Obedience for Jesus was not just something just so simple He still, as a human, needed to learn obedience. And as Jesus sets his face, as he is determined to obey, he is committing himself to costly obedience. Now verse 52 and 53 shows the immediate opposition to Jesus on this journey of suffering. Jesus sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparation for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now on the one hand, this kind of rejection makes some sense. We know, for instance, from John chapter 4, that Jews and Samaritans generally did not get along very well. So maybe the Samaritans didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus because they didn't want a lot of Jews staying with them overnight. But notice that's not the reason that Luke says for their rejection of Jesus. The people did not receive him, notice carefully, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. See, the Samaritans' rejection of Jesus is directly related to Jesus' determined mission to go to Jerusalem. But what did Jesus' mission have to do with this? I mean, did, did Jesus' messengers show up in, Samar- in the Samaritan village and say, you know, we're, we're headed south, we're going right to Jerusalem. And all the Samaritans say, well, we don't like Jews, we don't like Jerusalem, and did they just kind of slam their doors? Well, no. The Samaritans did not reject Jesus just because of where he was going or just because of how determined he was to get there. There may have actually been a lot of reasons why they didn't want Jesus to stay there. But the Samaritans' rejection of Jesus was ultimately because he had now entered into this new era of his ministry. This era that was marked by determination to go to Jerusalem for the purpose of suffering. And this new era now was going to be marked by more pointed, intense suffering that ends 
in the cross. So the, the Samaritan's rejection here, this was just the first of many as the suffering of Jesus increases as he gets closer and closer to the cross. Doesn't mean we can let the Samaritans off the hook, though. They're certainly responsible for their rejection of Jesus. But, but Luke is careful to show how their rejection of Jesus is fitting into the deeper plan of God. So that's the first thing that we've seen then, is this deeper plan of God that is being now realized by Jesus Christ as he heads for Jerusalem. But you know what? We see another plan in this passage. We see the disciples' plan. Verses 54 to 55, we see a plan that is marked by glory and by judgment. When Jesus' disciples see the rejection of their master, they are very upset. They are even angry about what they've seen. And at least two of the disciples, James and John, they want judgment right here and right now. Notice what it says. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Remember, James and John, they're called the sons of thunder. I think you can kind of see a little bit here why they have that name. But, but James and John actually aren't entirely wrong. We can write them off for going too far, but they aren't entirely wrong in their plan. They actually asked for Jesus' permission instead of trying to do it themselves. So they aren't, they aren't trying to act on their own. And actually what's motivating them is zeal for Jesus. That's good, but it's misplaced and it's mistimed zeal. Think with me about what, what James and John want. Well, look back in the Old Testament here to see where they're going. They want to call down fire from, on, from, from heaven on this village which is rejecting Jesus. That's actually a reminder of something that happened in the Old Testament in the life of Elijah. So the king of Israel, Ahaziah, receives a prophecy from Elijah that he's going to die. And Ahaziah does not want to receive this and actually turns against Elijah. And he starts to send these groups of soldiers to come and have a little chat with Elijah. And in each case, as the soldiers come up to Elijah, this is what happens. But Elijah answered the captain of 50 soldiers, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. But James and John, they know their Old Testament. And they know that they've got somebody better than Elijah with them. They have not just the man of God, they have the Christ of God now. And just like those Israelite soldiers weren't rejecting, were not respecting Elijah, that's what's happening with Samaritans. They're actually rejecting the Christ of God. So immediate judgment right here and right now seems fitting. But, but, the disciples' plan does not fit God's plan. It does not fit Jesus' plan. Do you remember, for instance, what the disciples themselves were told to do when this kind of rejection happened to them? Just earlier in this chapter, remember, Jesus sent them out to preach the good news and to heal. What were they supposed to do? 
When a village rejected them like this, they were just supposed to shake the dust off their feet. They're supposed to do that as a sign of judgment, as a promise of something that was going to come for rejecting Jesus. But it was a warning, not a reality now. And Jesus is clear that judgment for rejecting him will come. Actually, in the next chapter, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus describes the judgment that will come to cities of Israel which did not repent. But God's plan is that judgment does not come yet. The disciples, really what they're doing, they're trying to skip to the end of the story. They're trying to take that last page that they know is coming, a, a page of judgment, and they're trying to kind of kind of fit it into their chapter now, maybe, maybe tape it in to make it look good. But, but it doesn't fit there. It doesn't fit now. What the disciples don't realize is that in order to get to that last page of the story, you actually have to read the whole book. And that book, which ends in judgment, first has to cover Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. The disciples' plan really is a plan of triumph. Glory for Jesus and them, and judgment for his enemies. But that doesn't fit God's plan. Every step for Jesus, every step that he takes toward Jerusalem, is actually a step down. It's actually a step further down until the low point in his life of the cross and the tomb. But in the disciples' mind, every step toward Jerusalem, well, well, that's a step up. Because we're going to triumph. I'm going to triumph with Jesus as the Son of Man. We've actually seen their misplaced ideas earlier in this very chapter. And Jesus' response to his disciples is brief and it's to the point. But he turned to them and he rebuked them. End of story. This is actually similar to what Jesus had to do with another disciple. Remember, right after Peter, in the book of Matthew, Peter confesses Christ. The very next section, Jesus is explaining his death, and listen to what happens. But Peter takes him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, that this will never happen to you. But Jesus turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Just like Peter, these other disciples have put their mind on the things of men. They put their mind on what makes sense to them. But their plan is not the plan of God. And thank God that it isn't. Because if the disciples had their way, if the disciples were all going for glory and they got glory now, if Jesus avoided the cross, then they would have no salvation and you and I would have no salvation now. That's what's at stake here when you look at God's plan and the disciples' plan. Your salvation hangs in the balance. Now, if we look at verse 54, you may notice in your translation, certain translations have additional words here in verse 54, where where Jesus rebukes the disciples, and then he actually goes on further to explain that his mission is to save people. 
I'm going to simply say at this point that while I think that the content of those words is biblical, I don't think those particular words are original to this passage. And one important reason that I think that and others think that is that these words are not actually found in many early copies of the Bible. That's actually a really important consideration as we we look at the text of Scripture. So at this point, I'm just going to stick to the simple fact that Jesus rebuked the disciples and we're going to move along with him to the next village. So God's plan, we've seen it. We've seen this proposed detour into the disciples' plan. And then finally, in verse 55, we see we're back on track. The plan of God continues. Verse 55 is just very short, very simple. And they went on to another village. Simple statement of fact, right? But this walk to this next village shows that God's plan of salvation continues. Jesus is not thrown off by being rejected by the Samaritan village. Jesus isn't thrown off by being tempted by the disciples to seek for glory now. Jesus' commitment remains the same. Go to Jerusalem to suffer. How do we respond to suffering? Especially suffering for Christ. We may read passages like this one in Luke, or even as we read before, whole books like 1 Peter, where a major theme there is suffering for Christ. We can find it hard to connect it to our lives. I don't feel that I've suffered much for Christ in some ways. I've never been kicked out of a village, let alone a hotel, for following Christ. It's true, I've certainly been looked down on for being a Christian. Sometimes in my own family, or in places of work, or with friends. I felt that, but but that's about it. Just being looked down on for my faith. But our lives here and now in Virginia, these are an anomaly for the Christian. What we experience now is not common either in the history of the church or actually the experience of many of our brothers and sisters today. Christians around the world right now, right today, on Sunday, are actually facing much more persecution from the world than we often do. But even though that's true, what does God actually say is going to be true for all believers, including us? 2 Timothy 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise. That's a promise, not just for somebody over in China or pick another country. That's a promise for us here. Sometimes we don't like this, though. We don't like this idea of of suffering for Christ. We don't like this idea of persecution. That's natural. I don't think many of us want pain. But then we try to actually avoid suffering for Christ. Maybe, maybe we don't want to say anything. Maybe we don't want to share our faith or say even what we've been doing over the weekend. Sometimes we just try to stay in this, this holy huddle kind of mentality. I mean, if you don't share the gospel with somebody, you can't get rejected, right? But that's what you're called to do. You are called to be faithful, to suffer with Christ. Because actually, that kind of behavior, when we're trying to run away from what God has called us to do, when we're trying to run away from suffering, is not living a godly life in Christ Jesus. 
Christ Jesus always runs counter to sin in every situation. And so we should expect pushback when we live as servants of Jesus Christ. As Peter warns us, don't don't suffer for the wrong reasons. Don't suffer because of your sin. But he actually encourages us to suffer as we suffer with Christ. But, But again, how do we respond when we do suffer? When we are actually suffering for the name of Christ. First off, we can suffer with understanding. Our suffering for Christ is a central part of God's plan for us. Okay, this is not accidental. This is not an added extra. This is central to God's plan for you and for me. Remember I said in the beginning that we are actually united to a suffering Savior. That's the Savior that God has provided for us. And He has joined us to Him and He is making us like Him. So what is true of Christ is becoming true more and more of us. Remember that one of the main questions in this entire chapter in Luke is actually what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? And we've seen again and again in this chapter that those who follow Jesus Christ will suffer like in this is God's plan. Jesus at this village of the Samaritans knew that the rejection was part of God's plan and we too need to understand how suffering fits into God's plan for us as well as Jesus' followers. But even as we understand God's plan for us, understand God's love for us in this plan. This is not just some calculated, cold plan for you. You want to be like Jesus, suffer like Jesus, everything will work out. No, this is actually a way that God shows love for you by taking you into circumstances like this where you can suffer like your Savior. God shows His love as He sustains us in times of suffering, right? As He actually works through His Spirit and His Word and His church to make us faithful to the end. But actually, God shows His love even before that by bringing us into the circumstances of suffering because He loves you so much He loves me so much that he's going to do that hard work of shaping us, not in ways that we want. I don't want to be pushed in this way. I don't want to be poked that way, God. But God loves us enough to do this work in us because he wants us to look exactly like Jesus Christ. So we can understand God's plan. We can understand and really see God's love for us. But also, the Bible is clear that one of the ways that we can respond to suffering is with joy. Responding with joy. This this is definitely not my natural response. I'm not even very joyful when my body hurts. We were doing some yard work this week, and I woke up yesterday. I was very sore, and I was not happy. It's just from raking a few leaves. What about suffering for the name of Christ? What about potentially losing my friends? What about potentially losing my job or even losing my life for the name of Jesus? Can I really rejoice and have joy when that's happening? But listen to the words of Peter. 1 Peter 4, we read it earlier. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice 
insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Did you hear what Peter says? We rejoice now so that we can rejoice later. See, we are not rejoicing now because pain is somehow good. You know, and we're some kind of like Christian masochist. No, that's not what the Bible says. But because we can rejoice because as we suffer for Christ, we share in his sufferings. And because we share in his sufferings, we will share in his glory. And when we share in his glory, then we will also rejoice. So as you and I experience suffering for the sake of Christ, we can know it's God's plan for us. We can know that God is actually showing his love for us in this. And we can actually rejoice because of the end goal that we're looking forward to that God has promised for us. Suffering for Christ does not mean that God's plan for you is somehow off the rails. Suffering for Christ means that God's plan for you is right on track. This is where he wants you to be. So as we ourselves maybe experience rejection, as we experience suffering, as we walk onward in a Christian life that is marked by difficulties at times, we can walk forward with (coughs) rejoicing because we are walking forward in the very footsteps of Jesus. The very footsteps that lead to Jerusalem. We're not following Jesus somehow to win our salvation all over again. No, no, no. We're not doing it like that. But we are walking in those footsteps because we are joining Jesus in his suffering. And then we are also joining Jesus in his glory. I think a fitting prayer for us as we close is that we would truly see God's plan unfold in our suffering, that we would see his love on full display in a time of suffering, and that even that we would see that it is a privilege, it is a privilege to be counted worthy to suffer for our Savior. With that in mind, let's go to God in prayer. Lord, again, as we've looked at another section from this chapter, these are not easy words for us. These are not things that we can just take to heart and walk out of here. We pray that you would be at work in us to actually help us to understand the the significance of what it means to follow a Savior who is rejected and suffering but also to know that he was rejected and suffering because of us and our sin, and he chose to go to the cross to pay the penalty for some of those very same people, us, who have turned our backs on him. Lord, we pray that you would change our hearts so that we would actually see it and count it as a privilege to be serving you and a privilege to be sharing in your sufferings. Lord, we want with Paul to share in your resurrection and as he says then that 
we must also first suffer with you. Lord, as we now prepare for our week ahead, make us faithful. And Lord, also, as we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world again, we pray that this truth would be true, that you will sustain us, that you will strengthen us in the things that you have called us into. We pray that for them, and we pray that for us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.